And as we enter a time of reflection and of prayer, I have a couple of urgent prayer requests that I'd like to share with you. Um, first, our uh, missionaries, Don and Marie Burgess. They are missionaries to the Taramara Indians in Mexico. Well, Don was diagnosed this last week with three tumors in his spine and ribs. And um, yeah, and he also has a crushed vertebrae, I think. So they are right now awaiting um, radiation therapy in Tucson. Uh, the other announcement is uh, that our, many of you know Esther Paskey. Uh, her brother-in-law just passed away yesterday. Um, a lot of us have been praying for, for Brandon, but he is with the Lord. <clears throat> there are some others in our body who are also uh, have heard some uh, diagnoses and, and difficult ones, so let's come to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we first of all honor, offer honor and praise to you as our one king. And Father God, we thank you for the, your extravagant prodigal love for us. As we consider our own frail bodies, the difficult times and struggles, we must turn to you for strength and for hope. We pray for our missionaries, Don and Marie Burgess, as they face this devastating diagnosis of tumors in the bones. Um, they have been your faithful servants through all these decades and have always relied upon you. And at this time, we urgently pray for wisdom for the doctors and availability of radiation therapy in Tucson. So we pray that you strengthen Don physically and encourage Marie, um, surround them with angels through their hospital staff and friends and family. We pray now for Esther's brothers, I mean sister's family, Maria and their kids. Uh, we know that the, Brandon is in your presence now, out of time and no longer suffering. We're grateful that they are a believing family. Um, and we pray for Esther and Tim and all of the extended family right now. We similarly uphold several in our own body right now who recently uh, have received news of difficult diagnosis. They are stepping into the unknown into grieving, and we as their family step in there with them. We pray that you hear our fervent prayers for these brothers and sisters. As our creator and maker, Lord God, we grant, uh, we ask that you grant, grant them healing, grant them strength in your mercy, and may they know that they are loved and supported in our prayers. Lord, we broaden our prayer time uh, to the world. Uh, we are facing the uncertainty of a spreading pandemic, devastating climates, and incredible natural disasters. We pray for the victims of the earthquake that hit Haiti yesterday. Hundreds, if not thousands, perished or suffering from there. We pray for wisdom in their leaders and for the people who are um, undergoing this tragedy to be turning to Jesus and that you're your people be hands and feet of Jesus to them. And now for our service, Lord, we pray for Bernard, your servant, who will bring your word to us this morning. May the Holy Spirit open up our hearts and minds through this message. May we yearn 
to have the one true King Jesus be enthroned in our lives. In his name we pray, amen. Now, in our prayer earlier, um, we recognize how frail our lives are, how short our numbered days are. Yet, still in that, we can approach the throne of God with confidence only because of his grace to us. And with that in mind, let me read our scripture reading from Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone by or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning in the morning that springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord, our God, rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord for us. And now I invite um, Bernard to come and uh, preach to us this morning. Thank you, Jerry. And uh, thank you for uh, that reading from Psalm 90. Well, good morning all. And uh, so more than 30 years ago, a friend of mine gave me a, a book, a copy of a children's book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And this friend wrote on the uh, inside front cover, just to encourage you that there are others in the same boat. Now, um, 30 plus years later, I cannot remember what my situation was back then, but this book uh, came to mind earlier this last week, and so I pulled it down from our shelf and uh, read through it again. So for Alexander, the day started out very badly, right from the moment that he woke up, before he even got out of bed. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And at the end of the day, back in bed, he says, it has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are like that. And a few months ago, Bunny talked about this book in one of her children's messages. Um, well, I was thinking about this book, not because I was having a bad day, but because I was thinking about King Belshazzar. And unlike Alexander, his day actually started out very well, but it ended up being a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. It ended up being a day very much worse than Alexander's bad day. It was the worst day of his life. 
indeed, the last day of his life. It was the last day of his reign, and it was the last day of the Babylonian Empire. So how did a day that started so well go so horribly wrong? Well, the first four chapters of Daniel that we've looked at over the last month have been about King Nebuchadnezzar. But in chapter five, we meet a new king, King Belshazzar. So who is he, this Belshazzar? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, the Nebuchadnezzar of the first four chapters, was the second king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Technically, he was Nebuchadnezzar II, but nobody remembers the second part because he was Nebuchadnezzar the Great, Babylon's greatest king. It was he who took the Jews into exile, into captivity in Babylon, and thus he was the first king of the Babylonian exile of the Jews. And he ruled for 43 years, from 605 to 562 BC. But in the six years after his death, there were four different kings in Babylon. With the fourth of them, Nabondinus being a usurper, he seized the throne. And after ruling in Babylon for a few years, uh, he went off on an extended vacation. He uh, spent 10 years in a desert oasis in, out in Arabia. Nobody knows why, maybe he just got tired of ruling the empire. And he left his son in charge in Babylon. That's Belshazzar. So, uh, in effect, Belshazzar was the king. And we'll see that he was the last king, the last king of Babylon. Now chapters two through seven of Daniel are arranged in a chiastic pattern. So uh, A, B, C, C prime, B prime, A prime, and for most of you, you've heard this term chiastic often enough that you're familiar with how this works. Um, so chapters two and seven are paired. Uh, in chapter two, we have a vision of a four-part statue which represents four kings or kingdoms. In chapter seven, we'll encounter four beasts also representing four kings or kingdoms. Chapter three is about uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the uh, blazing fiery furnace. Chapter six is about Daniel in the lion's den. Chapter four is about Nebuchadnezzar and his humbling. Chapter five is about Belshazzar and his humbling. So over these next three weeks, we will revisit the themes of chapters two through four, but in the reverse order. And today's chapter five, as we see, is the counterpart of chapter four. And this means that King Belshazzar of chapter five today is paired with King Nebuchadnezzar of chapter four that we looked at two weeks ago. The question is, does he compare well? Does he measure up to Nebuchadnezzar? And though Nebuchadnezzar is dead, he looms large over this chapter. And repeatedly, Belshazzar is confronted with him. And repeatedly, Nebuchadnezzar is described as his father, as Belshazzar's father. Now, strictly speaking, he was not. Belshazzar's father was Nabonidus, who was off enjoying his vacation at the desert oasis, enjoying the spa or whatever he was doing there. But father-son language is used more freely in Semitic languages. And so in the context of the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar was his father as the king of Babylon. And repeatedly we are invited to compare these two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, as father 
and son. More particularly, an overachieving father and an underachieving son. But in the end, we'll find that the comparison concerns their attitude to God, the one true God, the God of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we'll find it's a comparison between the first king of the Jewish exile and the last king of the Jewish exile in Babylon. So I hope that you've brought your Bibles this morning and invite you to uh, turn to Daniel chapter five. And uh, although it's a fairly long chapter, I'm gonna read not quite all of it, but uh, a good portion of it uh, this morning. So Daniel chapter five, verse one. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So King, Belsh king Belshazzar made a great feast. And straight away, the memory of Nebuchadnezzar is evoked. Because chapter three begins, King Nebuchadnezzar made a great, a great gold image. And on that occasion, Nebuchadnezzar summoned all the officials of the empire, the satraps and the prefects and that long, long list we saw, and uh, summoned them to the dedication of the image and he commanded all nations, peoples and languages to bow down and worship that image. Here, Belshazzar gathers his nobles, a thousand of them, all the important people, and he gathers his wives and his concubines for a drinking party. And he commanded that the Jewish temple vessels be brought so they could drink wine from them. Now these are the vessels that were brought from Jerusalem, by whom? By Nebuchadnezzar, his father. So here already we have the first of the many references to Nebuchadnezzar being his father. Now Nebuchadnezzar had placed those vessels into the treasury of his gods in Babylon. He had treated them as sacred. He had not used them for ordinary use. But Belshazzar, his son, intends to desecrate these vessels. Verse three, so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So Belshazzar carried through with his plan. He defiled the sacred vessels in two ways. Firstly, by using them as wine goblets for his great feast. And then secondly, by praising the idols, the gods of gold, of silver, of bronze, of iron, of wood, and of stone. He used the vessels that were intended for the worship of the one true God to worship these created images that represent non-gods, something that his father would never have done. So right from the start, the chapter compares Belshazzar unfavorably with Nebuchadnezzar his father. But in Belshazzar's mind, his day was going very well. He is surrounded by all of his nobles, his wives, his concubines, many of each, with himself at the center. He was having a great day. Verse five, suddenly, 
suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Suddenly, at that very moment, when Belshazzar and his revelers were praising these false gods with wine served in the true God's sacred vessels. At that very moment, fingers appeared out of nowhere and wrote on the wall as the king watched. And his reaction is described in four ways. Firstly, his countenance changed. That is, his face went pale. Secondly, his thoughts were alarming him. Thirdly, well, the NIV renders it as his legs became weak. I think that's a uh, considerable under-translation. It's literally the knots of his loins were loosened, and uh, CSB is bold enough to translate that as he soiled himself, which I think is about right. And then finally, fourthly, he was shaking so badly that his knees were knocking together. His day of celebration had suddenly taken a turn for the worse. His terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day had begun. Now what was the king to do? Well, he did what his father Nebuchadnezzar had done. He summoned in the experts. Verse seven, the king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means, will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. So the king wanted the magicians to do two things, to read the writing, and to provide the interpretation. Now, why did he want them to read the writing? That suggests that he couldn't read it himself. Well, probably the writing consisted of just consonants without any vowels. So somebody needed to provide the vowels to make sense of those letters. But despite the great rewards offered by the king, the magicians were unable either to read or to interpret the message. And by now, this is what we've come to expect from these magicians. And as a result, Belshazzar was even more shaken. His day was steadily getting worse. Next, a formidable woman enters the banqueting hall, the queen, or more probably the queen mother. And it seems she had not been invited to the feast, but she enters. Verse 10. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve 
difficult problems, which is actually the term to loosen knots that we've already seen. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. May the king live forever. That's how she addresses uh, the king. She wants to help. Don't be so alarmed. The help you need is right here. But then she reminds this king about his father, the king. King Nebuchadnezzar knew what to do when the magicians failed. He would call in Daniel because he knew that the spirit of the holy gods was in him, which we heard three times in the previous chapter, chapter four. So do what your father did. Call for Daniel and he'll tell you the meaning of the writing. Now the queen mother was trying to help and she actually provided the right help. But I'm sure her suggestion made Belshazzar's day, bad day even worse by comparing him unfavorably to his father. He does not seem eager to accept her suggestion because we do not read that Belshazzar called for Daniel. Nevertheless, Daniel is brought in and Belshazzar addresses him. Verse 13, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and to tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I've heard, I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So right from the start, the king addresses him in a derogatory manner. Oh, you're Daniel. Um, you're one of the exiles my father, brought, the king, brought back from Judah. You're one of those refugees. Uh, you're one of those displaced people. You're not one of us. You're a nobody. And then rather than saying, as his father had said, I know that the spirit of the gods is in you, he said, I've heard about you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, that you have illumination, insight, and wisdom. Now, how has he heard that? He's only just heard that because this is exactly what the queen mother had just told him in verse 11. Next, he complains of the inability of the magicians. And then again, he says to Daniel, I've heard about you. I've heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. And again, this is what the queen mother has just told him in verse 12. And then in the final sentence, Nebuchadnezzar would have said to Daniel, read this writing and tell me what it means, confident that Daniel could do so. But his son lacks this confidence. He says, if, if you can read this writing and tell me what it means. And then he promises the same extravagant reward that he promised to the magicians. Now it is clear from this speech that Belshazzar knows about Daniel, but has chosen not to know him. Daniel has been forgotten, sidelined, marginalized, excluded. And here yet again, Belshazzar pales in comparison with his father, Nebuchadnezzar, 
because Nebuchadnezzar valued Daniel so highly. Now, did the Jews as a whole feel this way? Daniel lies forgotten, the Jews feel that they were forgotten, that God had forgotten them, that he no longer saw them as the exile dragged on decade after decade. Was there any hope of being re-included in God's purposes? Would he be faithful to his promises to bring an end to that exile? And I'm sure Daniel, during the years that he was being ignored by the king, would have wondered what his purpose was. Well, Daniel declined Belshazzar's promised rewards, which left him free to speak his mind. And speak his mind is what he intended to do. Nevertheless, he said, he would read the writing and tell the king its meaning. But first, he has some very pointed things to say to the king. Verse 18. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. So Daniel starts by respectfully addressing Belshazzar as you, O king. And then he continues, and here I'll translate a bit more literally, especially, especially preserving the word order. The most high God, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor gave, gave to whom? Well, we have to wait to the very end of the sentence to find out to whom God has given this. Not to you, Belshazzar, but to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Ouch. He was the great king, not you, Belshazzar. In his greatness, he was feared by all nations and peoples of every language, terms we've heard several times before in the book. He acted like God, killing and letting live, raising up and putting down as he wished. His word was supreme. But, but Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that he was not God. He had to learn that his sovereignty, greatness, and splendor were not his own doing. They were gifts from God. And so the Lord humbled him until he acknowledged that it is the most high God who is sovereign. And this is what the previous three chapters really have been all about, especially chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar was ultimately responsive. He ultimately learned that lesson. But it was a hard lesson. It took extreme measures. But he did eventually humbly acknowledge God's sovereignty over all earthly kingdoms. Notably, God's sovereignty over himself. He was the great king, Nebuchadnezzar the Great. 
but he was not the supreme king. Therefore, Daniel's implying to Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, was a great king, even in God's sight, because he humbled himself. And now, after reviewing this lesson, the example of King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel turns to Belshazzar, turns from the father to the son, verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. But you, his son Belshazzar, here we go again. The son is being compared to the father and found wanting. You have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Belshazzar knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar and he knew what he should have done. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, his specific assault on the, on the supremacy of God was looking out over Babylon the Great and saying, boasting that this is what I have built. In the case of Belshazzar, his specific assault on the Lord of Heaven was to have the temple vessels from Jerusalem brought to him and his revelers so that they could drink wine from them in their party and show their allegiance to their so-called gods, which are no gods at all. And for this sacrilege, for not honoring the true God, God himself has sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And only now, after the stinging indictment of Belshazzar, is Daniel ready to read the inscription and give its meaning. Now, what he has just said, Daniel really is functioning as a prophet. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord, but it's clear that he is giving the divine verdict on both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. He is acting as the Lord's mouthpiece, delivering this... uh, stinging rebuke of Belshazzar's self-centeredness and self-aggrandizement. But now we are ready for the inscription and its meaning. Verse 25, this is the inscription that was written, mine, mine, tekel, parson. Daniel supplies the vowels for the consonants and he reads the words as nouns. And these three nouns, the first two words are just the same, repeated. These are units of weight and also of monetary value. Mine is the Hebrew word mina that we encounter a number of times in both uh, Old and New Testaments. Tekel is uh, the Aramaic equivalent of Hebrew shekel, which even today is the unit of currency uh, in Israel. And then parson is a, a dual form of a word, of the singular peres, meaning divided, so it indicates two halves, either half minas 
or half shekels. So that's a simple reading of the words. Next, he interprets the three words, and now he reads them not as nouns, but as verbs. Verse 26, here is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So read as verbs, the three words, mina, tekel, and perez mean numbered, weighed, and divided. And then for the third word, there's an additional word play with the word for Persian, as the kingdom is divided to the Persians. Your days are numbered. You've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. The writing is on the wall. These phrases have all entered into our vernacular today. They are familiar idioms today. Belshazzar does not measure up to great Nebuchadnezzar. God used Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument of judgment upon sinful Judah. The great king captured Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, palace, and city walls, and he took the leading people captive to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was acting on his own initiative, that he was the one with agency, that he was the one accomplishing all this. But at the beginning of the book of Daniel, we were told that it was the Lord who delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, together with the temple vessels. And it took four chapters for Nebuchadnezzar to really learn this lesson to really learn that his own sovereignty was delegated from a higher sovereign, from God Most High and that his accomplishments were really gifts from God. But Belshazzar was not like his father Nebuchadnezzar, as we've been repeatedly told in this chapter. He did not humble himself, therefore his time was up, and Babylon's time was up. His days are numbered, he's been weighed in the balance and found wanting, the writing is on the wall. Now, I took my title from this sermon from the first line of a quatrain that's a, a four-line stanza that's attributed to the Persian poet Omar Khayyam uh, from the 11th century. The moving finger writes, and having writ, moves on. Nor all thy piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all thy tears wash out a word of it. The moving finger writes. It stands written. Belshazzar is found wanting, and no amount of effort can cancel any word of that decree. The writing on the wall was indelible. Belshazzar could not erase it. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So as Belshazzar had been partying with his many nobles and wives and concubines, the Medes and the Persians had been tightening a noose around the city of Babylon. Babylon, which was thought to be invincible. Babylon, secure behind its great walls. And in the middle of the night, they entered without opposition 
They captured the city, they killed the king, and they ended the Babylonian Empire in just a matter of hours. Babylon the Great had fallen. Just 23 years after the reign of Nebuchadnezzar the Great, it was over. Now, Babylon the city continued, but now is just another city, a city within a new empire, the Persian Empire, whose capital was elsewhere. But Babylon the Great and the Babylonian Empire was over. And Darius took over the kingdom, or better, he received the kingdom. Because in the unseen realm, in the book of Daniel, it was God who brought this about. It was not Darius's accomplishment. It was God who brought an end to the Babylonian Empire. And it was God who raised up the Persians and handed Babylon over to them. It was God who gave Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, along with King Jehoiakim and the temple vessels. As we read at the beginning of chapter one, it was God who gave Babylon into the hands of the Medes and the Persians. It was God who was at work at the beginning and at the end of the exile of his people in Babylon. Cyrus the Persian allowed the captive Jews to return home to rebuild the temple and to repatriate the temple vessels, those vessels that had been desecrated by King Belshazzar. And at the beginning and the end of the exile, God was being faithful to his covenant with his people. At the beginning, he was faithful by bringing judgment upon his people for breach of covenant. And at the end, he was faithful by bringing his people home as he had promised. Therefore, it could be said of the Lord, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loyal love, his chesed, endures forever. And these are words that closed our call to worship, Psalm 100. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good, and his love, his chesed, endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And that is shown both in how he dealt with Nebuchadnezzar and how he dealt with Belshazzar. And these stories of Daniel helped sustain God's people as they lived under a succession of pagan empires, as they sought to flourish in a foreign land. Now, how did Nebuchadnezzar come to know the one true God and acknowledge that he himself was not God? Well, it was because of four Jews living in Babylon who remained faithful to their God at great risk to their own lives. How did Belshazzar, a king who trivialized the one true God and his faithful faithful servant, learn that the end was come to him when he had paid God and his faithful servant no attention at all? It was because Daniel was faithful, even although it seems that Daniel had been forgotten for many years. The people were not in the land, but God called them to be faithful where they were. And God would prove himself to be faithful. He would be loyal to his covenant. Now we gather here on Sunday mornings to pay attention to God. The one true God who has shown his covenant faithfulness supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and we gather to humbly remind ourselves that we are not God. During the week, we'll tend to get self-centered and to think that perhaps we are God, that what we have, we have is through our own accomplishments. But on Sundays, we, as a group, as a family, we come face to face with God and remind ourselves we are not God, but God is God. We reaffirm that God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is sovereign. We gather to give thanks for he is good. His loyal love endures forever. His loyal love endured throughout the Babylonian exile. His love endures through our situations, through the pandemic, through our own grief and heartache, through our terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days, as well as through our days of joy and gladness. His loyal love endures even when we feel forgotten and marginalized. He is faithful to his purposes. And these stories in Daniel also cultivated the appetite among God's people for God's eternal kingdom. A kingdom that would not be like the Babylonian Empire or the Persian Empire or the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. For the kingdom that would be eternal. And we'll begin to get a glimpse of that when we get to chapter seven. There is a king who is fit to sit on the throne of God's kingdom, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And we gather on Sundays to pay attention to him and sing our praises to him and acclaim him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and know that his kingdom is eternal. And we also gather on Sunday mornings to affirm that God is a generous God who gives that what we have is not our own accomplishments, but the gift of God, what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. So we've seen two mothers this morning. There's Alexander's mother, who says to him, some days are like that. Some days are terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. I'm sure there are some of you feeling that way as we endure the pandemic and it goes on and on and on as you face ill health. Think of Esther's sister Maria having just lost her husband with their two children. Others who are grieving. There are days that are like that because here on earth we're not yet into that final eternal kingdom. But God has not forgotten us. We are not sidelined and marginalized. He sees us just as he saw Daniel and his three friends in Babylon. And he's able to sustain us. And then there is the queen mother who said to Belshazzar, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Well, we have one far greater, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God himself, who is at God's very right hand, interceding for us, and to whom we can pray, and through whom we can pray, and know that we have the Father's ear, 
one who is able to sympathize and empathize with us in our struggles, in our weakness, in our grief, in our heartache. And so we take it to him in prayer. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Well, all our songs this morning have been on the theme of kingship. Jesus shall come people of the risen king, then come thou fount, come thou king, and then Jesus shall reign forever the sun. And we'll close with another hymn, uh, Be Thou My Vision, which we sing of the high king of heaven. May this high king of heaven indeed be our treasure. Well, may this high king of heaven indeed be our treasure today and all our days. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and evermore. Amen.